From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. But first, in studio today, Michael Geller. And I love this, and I just mentioned uh, off-air to Michael, I loved his uh, op-ed in the Vancouver Sun talking about real estate and predictions, which, Michael, you mentioned that you do every year. You make these uh, predictions, and we turn to you as a well-known urban planner and real estate consultant, property developer, uh, adjunct faculty member at SFU, a guy that should know everything and really have it all figured out. But 2023, you take a look at real estate Boy, who would have known all the different factors that came into play? What were your predictions and how did they turn out? Well, I had some clues because we had elections the year before. And I knew that meant during the election, many of the politicians were talking about they were going to figure out ways to speed up the approval process. They talked about the fact there was a need for more gentle density, more homes in established neighborhoods and so forth. So there were some clues. But that said... Bruce, I was shocked by some of the things that happened. I never expected some of the provincial announcements, for instance. Let's talk about those, because that really changed the game. You can go in as, uh, you know, even an urban planner. I go back to my days uh, in urban geography at UBC, and I learned under people like Ken DeNike and Walter Hardwick and David Lay, and, uh, you know, great profs. And I think, what would they have thought coming into a year like this year? It's really hard to figure out when the provincial government goes bold and really brings in some uh, things in terms of densification that are game changers. Is that the big one or are there even bigger factors at play in the past year? I think there were three big things from the province. The first was the idea that everybody who's living in a single family lot right now in the future could add three two, three, four, up to five new homes on those lots. That's a big deal because it's not just in urban Vancouver or Victoria, it's throughout the province. That's a big deal. The other one was the idea, which is logical, if you're living near transit where a SkyTrain station or a bus loop The government was very prescriptive. They said you can have buildings up to eight stories or 12 stories, four times the size of the land and so forth. Very prescriptive. The thing that shocked me, though, Bruce, was they said, and you don't actually have to have any parking if you don't want it. The other one was the province basically coming in and saying, look, if a proposal is within the overall plan, then you don't have to go through a public hearing, which oftentimes can last a long time. You may remember many years ago, I was involved in a public hearing in Delta that went on for 26 nights. Yeah. That won't happen. Which is just crazy on so many of those. I want to pick up on a couple. But the one that you talked about, uh, and this is kind of a a crow on my side that I continue to think about myself is that whole parking issue. And I'll give you some background because I wish I could take transit and have been a transit user my whole life. Reality sets in. I can't. Uh, I live in the suburbs. That's not the only excuse. I also have, like so many of us, a family, uh, commitments uh, after work, and, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where I have to have a vehicle to get around because there's no way with any transit system, you can have the best transit system in the world, 
But for some people that are highly engaged in the community and their family life and their professional life, you've got to have a vehicle. Now we come along and we say, so what? Doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to park it in many different locations. So what the government is saying is you don't have to have parking, but those people who read my uh, article in the end of Vancouver Sun this weekend will see that I predict that many developers will continue to provide parking. Now, they may not provide two spots for every townhouse like they were often required to do, but they're going to provide parking, and especially over time because it won't be long before. I use the word people are fighting over over parking uh, spots on the street. My editor changed it to bickering. But (laughs) they won't be bickering. They'll be fighting. And I anticipate some real problems. Hey, that was the spot I have been parking in for the last three weeks. What are you doing there? So we do have to make sure we respect the reality, as you rightly say. Many people have to use a car. And I think that reality is not really widely understood yet. It will be. That's my take on it. I do know that in the past year, I've talked with one developer in Victoria that proudly in on Vancouver Island. I forget if it was actually in Victoria, but in the uh, Victoria Mm -hmm. region, talking about building a condo development without any parking whatsoever. And that was a sense of pride. Wow. Really? And there's no doubt, Bruce, that there are some people who are now, they're listening to us right now, and they say, hey, I haven't owned a car now for quite a while. When I need a car, I use a car share program, and I think that is slowly becoming more and more popular. So for a certain segment of the population, it's very different than it has been for you and me. But the reality is it'll be a long time before we become like some European cities where hardly anybody owns a car. So are we cutting out little wedges of uh, developments that will be for certain types of people in certain demographics like the carless people that don't need one, don't envision that as part of their lives, and everybody else that has a family or other commitments outside of work that needs a car to operate – We'll be living in a different style of housing. Is that what we're in jeopardy of having or well, going? Well, I, would, I wouldn't use the word jeopardy, but I think that's the direction we're going. The other thing is those buildings where there may not be any parking, there will still be some visitor parking. And I'm working on a development right now in North Vancouver District, and I'm going to be proposing to the councillors and the staff that we reduce the number of parking spaces in an effort to make the homes more affordable, but we'll still want a minimum of three car share spaces as part of the development. And what about EVs? Is it going to have plug-ins for these? Every parking space, I suspect, from now on is going to have an EV connection. Whether or not we have the infrastructure to support that is another question. It's going to be interesting. One of the other things that we talked about as a possibility um, or one of the big factors for changes in the past year is the province coming in heavy-handed, almost taking over the planning for urban development by saying, guess what? We have to have this level of densification in certain areas. What do you make of that? So I wrote in the column 
that while it's uh, unusual to see a province coming in, I, I generally am supportive of the direction. But realistically, to all those municipal politicians and planners who are listening to us right now, you're not going to lose control because the reality is if your engineer says we don't have the sewer and water capacity for this development, it won't happen. Well, also the marketplace is still the marketplace. And I wonder if a lot of this was done without uh, the reality of the market really driving what's going to be places to live. In fact, the government coming in and saying that uh, this is what we want and we're going to have people riding in on a unicorn down the rainbow and everything is going to be great living in denser areas and it's going to be environmentally friendly, but that's not a reality necessarily. Uh, I don't know. What's your take on that? Do we go too far? The pendulum often swings. It swings one way and then it swings the other. I think realistically, it's a direction that the, everybody is, is in agreement on. Yes, we should allow a bit more variety in single-family neighborhoods. Yes, we should be building more homes near transit stations and bus loops and so forth. We shouldn't be requiring two parking spaces for every apartment, which, believe it or not, has been a requirement in some parts of Metro until very, very recently. But general, as you say, the marketplace will dictate to a certain degree what makes sense. And these things will happen gradually. We won't see much change this coming year, if only because the province and the municipalities have to reach some agreement on this standards in every municipality. They're supposed to do that by June. I predict it may take a little bit longer. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Guest is Michael Geller, urban planner, real estate consultant, property developer. We're talking about 2023 and the year that was and the hard predictions that we made back about a year ago that didn't come true. Michael, you got it wrong in so many different areas. It's going to be different this year. (laughs) No, I got it right in a couple of areas. I'll tell you one thing I got wrong. I couldn't believe the provincial government would expand the area where the vacancy tax would apply. I think it was a mistake to apply it in Qualicum and Parksville and communities like that. And I think there'll be unintended consequences in terms of the economy of many of these communities because oftentimes people who have second homes spend more money in the community than people who are just barely paying for their own home. And that is also one area of the market that has to be recognized as a reality. Uh, But talking about realities, one of the concentrations of the provincial government goes back to the budget was this whole notion we talked in the commercial break, you and I, about this affordable housing. Yeah, I've said and I continue to believe that affordable housing is a term that really isn't a reality. What's your take in terms of Vancouver? So my background was... uh I worked for 10 years with CMHC, the Federal Housing Agency. And there I learned that for low-income people, it really is the responsibility and almost obligation of government to fund new projects, working with nonprofits, church groups, other community organizations to create housing for people who can't afford what the marketplace delivers. And, you know, that was going quite well up until about 1992, 93, when the federal government got out of funding that, that housing. And that is one of the real reasons we have some of the problems we're experiencing today, not all of them. So realistically, there will always be a need for the governments to be subsidizing housing and the nonprofits to be strong and building it. 
But the other side of the coin is, as I mentioned to you, I am concerned that construction costs are increasing. And uh, we never really managed to train all of the people we need to build housing. And so as construction costs increase, new housing invariably will go up. And the one thing that I believe, and not everybody will agree with this, as new housing becomes more expensive, even the existing housing increases in value because realtors and others look at the spread. That new apartment that comes in at $1.4 million, the existing apartment that might have sold for eight hundred, maybe it can go up to eight fifty or nine hundred, and that what they say a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, Michael. Years ago, I used to think that if you were a school teacher, maybe a high school teacher, and your partner was a high school teacher, you would be able to afford a nice home in Vancouver. Everything you've mentioned right now still underscores that's not a reality for the future. When I worked for CMHC, the president came into our office one morning. He said, how many new homes did we build last year? And we all knew the answer. It was around 230,000. Then he said, how many houses are there in Canada? And we all looked at each other. Here we were working for the federal. None of us knew how many houses there were in Canada. My point is, not only should we be focusing on what we might be building next year, Let's try and make better use of all the housing we already have. And that's one of the reasons why I like to promote the idea of home sharing. Now, right now, people are about to turn the radio off. I'm not going to share my house with anybody, they say. But realistically, one way to create more affordable homes is to share. Two people sharing a one-bedroom apartment or a two-bedroom apartment will pay a lower rent than one person living in a one-bedroom on their own. It is a rethink. But to pick up on that, talking with my 13-year-old son, who's very much aware of the reality of housing when he grows up, I said, what do you envision? And he said, I'll live in a place with my friends. Yeah. And indeed, many of the people listening to us right now, when we were at university or in our first job, we were living. We were living with friends. I was with five people in a house on Bathurst Street in Toronto. That's going to come back because there's a number of other benefits that come with living with other people, too. There are, and that's a good place. We'll have to have you back to pick up on some of those. There are so many interesting points. 2024 is going to be an interesting year. Thank you for your take on this in the Vancouver Sun. Great read. Michael Geller, a pleasure as always. And thanks for coming in studio. Thanks for inviting me. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Great to have you with us. Yeah, we're talking about many things. Looking back at 2023, the year that was, and also looking forward to 2024. One of the areas I think we did pretty well in for this past year was film. We had some really good movies, didn't we? And that's something that you can't say every single year. What about uh, this story that came out today, though, in terms of film? And it has to do with Barack Obama. What's the connection? Well, first it was Barack Obama's favorite phone. Now, BlackBerry is one of the former U.S. president's top films of the year. Mike. Hi. Actually, no, this is Jim Balsley. I'm CEO here now. Co-CEO. Matt Johnson's BlackBerry, a satire about the Canadian company's rise and fall, is one of 13 movies to make Obama's list of the best films of 2023. 
Obama was famously a longtime lover of the BlackBerry and only upgraded to an iPhone in 2016. Who do you think they are to each other? Past lives, the nostalgic romance from Korean-Canadian filmmaker Celine Song also nabbed a spot on his annual list, alongside the holdovers Oppenheimer and Anatomy of a Fall. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Oppenheimer, of course, a really big film, but then there was also Barbie, uh, and that was something that was unique, very different, and certainly had a lot of buzz when it came out. Let's talk about the year in film and bring in Rick Forchok, TV Week magazine columnist and CKNW contributor. Rick, good afternoon. Happy New Year ahead. Same to you, Bruce. Good to talk with you. Good to talk with you. Um, Am I right in saying that it was a pretty good year for film? Like, let's be honest, you'd tell me if it was a bad year, or maybe it was average. I don't know. Well, it was a good year in film for me, and that's really all that matters, and uh, that's the case for each one of us. Uh, And, you know, I I like Barack Obama's list, and um, it just uh, demonstrates how subjective all of this is. Um, what is the best movie? What's the most successful movie? Is a successful movie the one that makes the most money at the box office? Or is it the one to which the most people say when surveyed, I love that movie? Or is it the one that uh, the peer group, the other directors and the other actors say, that's the best movie? Or can we have choice number four, where it is the one you like the best? Exactly. That's choice number four. What's the one I like the best? So my list of of movies that um, I thought were standouts for the year includes a lot of films that most people would say, "Hmm, I I didn't even know that was out. And um, when we look at... Oscar winners. Now, right now, uh, we have all of the big movies. The Color Purple is in theaters right now. And we have had Killers of the Flower Moon not long ago. And we have had uh, Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. These are all top of mind. Oppenheimer, a little further back. Barbie, a little further back. Uh, But movies are top of mind. But when we go back to last January, There were some very, very good movies in January, February, March, and April. Uh, My favorite film from that entire part time of the year was Tom Hanks' movie called A Man Called Otto. Now, do you know this movie, Bruce? No, and I saw the, and I read about the talk about it when it came out, saw previews for it, but never saw it. Yeah, it's available on streaming, and it's an excellent film. Tom Hanks playing a man of a certain age who's a typical grumpy old man, and his life has changed significantly uh, when a family moves in across the street from him and starts to interact with him. Now, he's a widower. He's a man who's had trouble in his life, like everybody else. And this movie had everything. It had a great performance from Hanks. It had an outstanding story. It was based on a book, on a novel. And uh, it uh, really had a great outcome. So it was a film uh, from which I could walk away and say, I'm really glad I saw that and I feel good. That's not the case with every movie, of course. But uh, in January, Man Called Auto, most people with whom I speak today say what you said. Well, I kind of remember hearing about that, but I didn't see it. Uh, Good time to see it. Got some time between uh, Christmas and New Year's. It's on my list now. A Man Called Auto. Wow. Um, What about the other big name films? The one that everybody talked about. Were they necessarily your favorites? No, they were not necessarily my favorites. I thought Killers of the Flower Moon was an excellent movie. I know Leo DiCaprio is right up there for an Oscar nomination. I didn't think it was his best work, but who am I to say? I liked the movie for a variety of reasons, and for those who wrote, read the book, 
uh, they would find the movie quite different. Uh, the book t- kind of takes a, an approach from the point of view of the FBI. Uh, this is a story of indigenous people in the 1920s and 30s uh, who have been uh, treated very, very badly by non-indigenous people because oil was found on their lands in Oklahoma. They became the single wealthiest group of people on the planet for a time. But where there's money, there are people out there to fleece you for it. So Killers of the Flower Moon, the movie, really focuses on the indigenous aspect, and I think they do a great job of it. There's some terrific performances. The book focused on the investigation by the FBI into this film. So uh, a lot of people will say, well, I thought the book was better, but I thought it was a very good movie, Um, not the best movie I've ever seen. Glad I saw it, however, liked it a lot, and um, liked it, uh, well, I liked Oppenheimer more, I have to tell you. I really liked Oppenheimer. So did I. And I don't know where you're going with in terms of what you like best. But for me, it was Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, which I thought was so outstanding. Uh, It it just blew me away. Uh, And people talked about so many other aspects of the film, and they're all good. But for me, that was it. What about you? Yep, I felt Downey's performance was outstanding, and it was really the highlight. And uh, that entire film was extremely well done. And they actually used the, uh, the the actual places where much of the action took place. In fact, a house in which Oppenheimer and his family lived still stands today in Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, where the proving grounds and the testing grounds were, and it's fully restored. Well, they used it for the movie. So when you look at the way these people were living, how they were living, and where they were living, it's deadly accurate, as was most of the dialogue. So I like Oppenheimer for a variety of reasons and at the other end of the spectrum of course was the Barbenheimer thing that was the Barbie yeah. movie I'm the guy that hated it I thought oh, the Barbie you hated movie it. was dreadful I did interesting no, no. did you go in with an open mind no okay. I did not fair enough and with... thanks for your honesty Rick no Rick I Forchuk, 2023 he was honest no there you go um why didn't you uh what was it about it was it just didn't strike you as something that should have been done in the first place? Oh, no, I would never say that. Uh, you know, I, I would never suggest that somebody shouldn't make a film. Uh, but I would suggest that this film was certainly not for me. What I didn't like about the Barbie movie was that uh, it was a highly sexist movie. But that sexism was shrouded and hidden away. At the end of the day, instead of Barbie being the big hero that she has been to all these little kids that play with Barbies, um, Barbie turned out to be another person who couldn't manage unless there were some men in her life that helped her. So the theme of the Barbie movie is women can do anything, all men are stupid. And if I was a, I don't know, an eight-year-old girl watching this, I would be wondering if my dad or the man in my life, uh, in my family, was really like that. Was he really all that stupid? I didn't care for it for that reason. it um, It really cast a pall over it. Now, I don't think most of the kids watching the film saw any of that they just saw a really stylish movie and and so they should it was it was good it made a ton of money but it wasn't for me bruce it was not my favorite movie for sure interesting take that wasn't necessarily my take on it uh i know the change in the end of it and i mean i don't think we're 
ruining any spoilers or spoiler alert, but the the change where Barbie opens up to the uh, the value of Ken in the end, uh, yes. I I didn't really take it as uh, as actually being anything along the lines of what you're saying. I thought it was okay, uh, but what really surprised me was just the animation, the colors, the sets, the visual spectacular, and uh, doing something completely different. And I think that uh, our other Canadian, Ryan, did a fantastic job with dancing. And uh, I just, I thought it was completely, really enjoyable, but in a, in a very escapist way. Yeah, and I probably read a lot more into it than was really there. Uh, but uh, Ryan Gosling was great in that movie, I agree. The colors, the photography, the sets were outstanding. I just didn't like the undercurrent, as I mentioned. I, I felt it had an undercurrent that really wasn't uh, uh, really wasn't appropriate. But that's just me. I haven't heard anybody else say that, so I think it is just me, Bruce. No, I, I have heard it from others. Uh, so it's not just you. It just wasn't my take necessarily. Now, of course, the interesting thing was that came out at about the same time. In fact, it may have been the same weekend as Oppenheimer, if I remember correctly. So you had two extremely different movies, big movies, big bets from the studios coming out. And I wouldn't say competing against, except uh, there are two offerings at the same theaters. That was weird, eh? It was very unusual, and we actually had kind of a, a cult thing happening where people were saying, I'm going to watch Barbie, and then I'm going to watch Oppenheimer. We're doing it in the same theater the same day. And uh, all over the U.S. and in parts of Canada, people thought this was a thing, uh, that if you could see both of those movies on the same day, that was really special. And perhaps it was. Uh, when I was uh, seeing Oppenheimer, which I chose to see first, I did notice that the theater was absolutely full of young girls wearing pink because they were all going to Barbie and they were having a great time. Well, I, I know one guy in his 50s who uh, works on radio every once in a while who also wore pink and uh, and he quite liked uh, wearing pink. Yeah, that would work. I think that's cool. <laughs> and I got my picture taken in the box. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, but you're right, it was an event and uh, so many people turned up to this event dressed up and I thought that is so cool when we talk about the return, the great return to seeing movies in the theater. Rick, other ones, other ones that we may not even have uh, known about, but uh, are still worthy of talking about for 2023. Well, I'm going to talk to you about some of those. Um, uh, Women Talking. This was also a movie from last January. It was directed by Sarah Pauly, a Canadian. Uh, She co-wrote the script, and it is a a fairly foreboding film. It's based on a true story, a true set of incidents uh, of women in a Mennonite community who had been badly treated. And uh, they had to make a decision at some point as to whether they would stay in this community, this commune, or they would leave. Very, very well done movie. I really did like it. Uh, In April, we had Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. And that was a film that I enjoyed tremendously. It's not based on anything real. It's not a, a real story, but it's a story that could have been real. And it's the story of leaving Afghanistan, leaving uh, with uh, your soldiers all being shipped out and promising to take the interpreters who would help the Americans and the Canadians with you, but not having done so. 
And the covenant was between this particular soldier who got safely back home, but he couldn't live with himself because his interpreter and the family of his interpreter were left behind, and he made it his mission to go and get him. It was extremely well done. Could you tell Uh, it was a Guy Ritchie film? He's got a definite style, and I'm a big fan of Guy Ritchie, but this sounds so terribly different than most of his work. Yeah, it's not when you watch it. Uh, when you watch it, you'll say, if in fact you're a fan, and I am, you'll sit back on the theater seat uh, several times throughout the movie and say, man, that's typical Guy Ritchie. There is a Guy Ritchie scene if I ever saw one. So if you hadn't seen it, Bruce, and if you're a Guy Ritchie uh, person, I would uh, strongly recommend The Covenant. Yeah. And when, when, you, when you put Guy Ritchie's name on it, it's not just The Covenant, it's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. You know it's special. Yeah, Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. We're with Rick Forchuk talking about movies and some of the best of 2023. Rick, before we talk about streaming services, let's just recap uh, what's on your list. Take about 30 seconds and then talk about streaming. Well, this is exactly the two of the same things. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about streaming and then we'll talk about streaming. These are movies which I thought were excellent movies for this past year. And they were all made for streaming. They did not have theatrical releases. One is called The Burial. It's with Jamie Foxx. Excellent movie with a Vancouver connection. It's uh, based on fact. The Lowen Funeral Group, an organization that bought up family-owned funeral homes across the U.S. and Canada, is the subject here. Fox does a great job. And if you haven't seen it, it is available for streaming. Uh, no charge at all. It's just your subscription price. It's called The Burial. Saw this one. one that- I loved it because uh, I knew some of the players in the story, uh, having worked in news and uh, could connect some of the dots. But uh, great movie. Yeah, I'm glad you saw that. Another one that I really enjoyed, made exclusively for streaming, was Nyad. And that's the story of Olympic athlete Diana Nyad, who swam uh, several attempts to swim from Cuba to Key West, Florida. And it's a great story of overcoming unbelievable odds and uh, just sticking with it and, and doing the job. Just an excellent film. I really liked it, and I thought it was very well done. Another one was The Mother, and it's a gangster movie. It starred J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, It was made for and by Netflix. And another that I really enjoyed, a great documentary, was called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. And that is still streaming on Apple+. And it's something in which Michael J. Fox had his hand in completely. And it talks about his struggle with Parkinson's. And it's a terrific look at his career. It's extremely well done. Those are all streaming movies, not available in theaters. And um, that kind of segues into what you want to talk about, Bruce, in terms of streaming. Go ahead. Well, just a couple seconds left in this. But we have to remember that there is another model coming into play for things like Amazon in February, where you're going to have to pay a little bit more if you don't want the commercials, right? Exactly right. Uh, So we are going to, and Netflix is also planning to have an ad-supported service as well. And uh, I won't won't pay for those. I'll pay the extra to have the no commercials. Thank you very much. And uh, it joins a business model of Pluto TV. Uh, Pluto is an app that you can get and you can put on your device, uh, your computer, and um, no no charge for it, but it is completely ad-supported. But it's full of really good television and some good movies, too. So it's coming. It's on the way because somebody's got to make the money 
to pay the big prices for all of these streaming films that are being made. Heads they are up. expensive and uh, they need more revenue. And content is key, and you're absolutely right. You're going to have to pay for that uh, to make it, so it, uh, it's understandable to watch it. You might have that. Rick Forchuk, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Best to you in 2024. Uh, thanks a lot, Bruce. Same back to you. Yeah, thanks for being with us on your Thursday afternoon. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this week. Inflation, higher interest rates, and oh yeah, the cost of housing. What a bloody expensive year it's been, 2023. And yeah, as this year winds down, Canadians are considering their New Year's resolutions. And surveys are showing improving financial health. No surprise here, top of the list. BDO Debt Solutions says instead of making a resolution, Canadians should be putting in place a 2024 financial plan. Where did we get to in this idea? What's the reason for it? What's the need? And how do we go about doing it? To talk about this, we bring in Nicole Olson, Senior Manager, Vice President of Licensed insolvency or a licensed insolvency trustee at PDO Canada. Nicole, thanks so much for being with us this afternoon and uh, happy new year ahead. Tell me about the need right now going into 2024 to have a plan in place. Oh, thanks, Bruce. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, absolutely. With the start of the new year, just a few days away, a lot of Canadians, including many uh, British Columbians, they're starting to think about that New Year's resolution. And according to surveys, paying down debt, um, obviously, some of the top of the list right now. But we're starting to show that surveys are showing inflation rates are obviously on the rise. The interest rates, like you said, they continue to be the leading financial concerns for Canadians heading into the new year. Um, cost of living is kind of going a little out of, out of hand. Economic uncertainty as well. Almost a third of Canadians plan to reduce their spending this coming year. And many are amending their New Year's resolutions to focus on their finances, and that includes financial goals and budgeting. And while most of us have financial goals, uh, a lot of Canadians don't have that financial plan or a financial budget in place. And that's what BDO is recommending, is that instead of a resolution, maybe you need to start thinking about creating an entire year-long financial plan, right? Right. And you know, Nicole, when you say this, I always uh, think of going on a diet. There are two parts to it, and it's basically calories in, calories out. Financial plan is money in and money out. But most of what we talk about in terms of planning is the money out. Do we ever take a look at this time of the year of just how to maybe take stock on money coming in? Yeah, that's a great way to start with your financial plan. So one of the first pieces is to really kind of take a survey and say, okay, how much income do I have coming in right now? And um, I use January as a really good time to go in. You can go on the um, CRA website and actually look and see what those payroll deduction calculators are. So you can see where all the new tax brackets are, figure out what your paycheck is going to look like for the coming year. Um, so that's one of the steps that I take to say, okay, how much money do I have coming in first? Uh, and then start looking at the expenses going from there. And when I list my expenses, I'm kind of looking for things that are, what are my needs first? And needs are housing, 
food, clothing, medication, the basic needs and necessities of living. And then after that, it's going to be the wants. So wants could be particularly like a car over maybe public transportation, um, you know, possibly putting in for uh, sports or activities or entertainment for the family. And then it's the things that you want to save long-term goals for, like vacations or an emergency fund. And that's where we're putting in those those things. Other people need to do reverse budgeting is what I call it. So reverse budgeting is actually figuring out if you're on a very fixed income, what do I need to survive? So what are my basic needs and expenses first? And then this is how much money I need to make. And then going back and saying, okay, how do I make this much money? Right. And there's quite often, well, there's always either a gap or a surplus in the two. There's a difference between what you're spending and what you're, you've got coming in. What do you do as a person when you start to have that honest conversation with yourself and you say, okay, this is how much money is coming in. And sometimes it could be flexible, especially if you're in business for yourself. And this is what's going out, say, per month. And what's going out is higher than what's coming in, which means you're leaning into things like your credit cards and you're leaning into even... Oh, perhaps loans or uh, or personal loans or uh, lines of credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of have one of three options in dealing with it if you have an upside down budget. So the first thing is, is is somehow figuring out how to increase your income. So we hear a lot about the gig economy, things that are, people are picking up extra work, uh, looking for ways to make extra funds. So that could be option number one. You could try to increase your income. Option number two is reducing those expenses. So it really is going through line by line on your budget items. And we may have an idea of how much we're spending on those. Like we always guess. Like you were saying about the diet, I kind of use that as an analogy as well. I'm like, oh, I only ate this many calories a day. But when you actually sit down and track how much you have, um, then you actually get into the nitty gritty of, oh, I ate a little bit more here or there. So budgeting is the same way. Um, Go back and look at maybe the last three months of bank statements to really add up where your expenses are going. And once you have those numbers in place, you can start saying, okay, I may not necessarily need this, or maybe I can cut this down. So if um, I have a particular expense myself, I'm crazy on Starbucks. So maybe it's instead of going to Starbucks three days a week, maybe I only go on the weekends like once on a Saturday or something. So I can reduce it, but not getting rid of that expense that I enjoy. Um, And then after that, it could be looking at those debt payments as well. So Oftentimes, especially with the increase in debt and there's some delinquencies as well with our interest rates being as high as they are, people's debt repayment payments are getting so high that it's eating up a lot of their income. So I only like to see clients where they're maybe spending a maximum of about 15% of their take-home pay on debt repayment. If they're not, if they're spending any more than that, they really should have a conversation with a debt restructuring professional who can go over their options with them, which could be just restructuring it, consolidating it, potentially looking at other more formal type of restructuring options. But if you're spending more than, you know, 30 to 50% of your income on debt repayment, you just don't have enough left to pay for any of your other needs. Nicole, it's, uh, I've been in this position myself. It's tough to come to the reality with yourself when you are kind of in a mess 
and need to be really honest and say, I need help or I need to do something differently or perhaps I wasn't as wise as I could have been. Where do you see people coming to you or coming to other professionals and saying, it's now time to get help? Is it when it's too late? And how do you really square that with the pride that they might have in themselves in saying, I'll get through it, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry? Sometimes, yeah, most of the time I see clients that come to me kind of too late in the game. Not that we can't help them. They just always say at the end of the conversation, man, I would, I wish I would have talked to you sooner. It would have saved me a lot of pain or a lot of money or other things. So I say talk to a professional like myself, a licensed insolvency trustee. We're regulated by the government. We're required to go over every single option out there and available to the client. So when they come in and have a conversation with us, one, not only is it free, but two, it's completely non-judgmental. We take a look at their entire financial picture, go over all their options with them and say, okay, this is where your budgeting issues are or that we foresee. We're not going to tell you, you can't have this, you can't have that. We're just going to say, tell us what your goals are and we'll kind of create a plan. And I always say, it's like, here's door number one, here's door number two, here's door number three, here's all the pros and cons of each of these options. And ultimately, the choice is up to the client to decide which option they want to go with, but at least they have somebody to have that conversation with in that safe and non-judgmental area. But I say the sooner you talk to a professional, the better it is. Think about it. If if my New Year's or my health plan coming in January is that I want to get to the gym and start exercising and doing all that stuff and getting myself into shape, the best thing for me to do is actually go and talk to an expert like a nutritionist and a financial plan, uh, not, not a financial planner, a fitness planner, a personal trainer, so that I actually don't injure myself and then take myself out of the game completely. They have the knowledge I don't. If I just go in and try to start picking up machines and doing things, I'm probably going to hurt myself. And True. the same could be said about our finances, right? Bruce in for Jill. We've been talking about the tough year in terms of costs and our budget going into 2020, 2020, 2024. Yeah, it's already that late. Our guest, Nicole Olson, Senior Manager, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Canada. And yes, the recommendation, the bottom line is putting in place a 2024 financial plan and following it. Nicole, what is that financial plan? How do we go about doing it? I guess, like you said, that first step of actually taking a look at things can be and probably is the hardest step to take. But once you do and just have that conversation or take that look, um, it's going to make things a little bit easier. So to create your financial plan, you should really take that honest look at your financial situation. You need to think about your income, your expenses, any amount of savings that you've put in place, RRSPs, TFSAs, and then really focus on what are the challenges in your budget? But what are your successes as well? So make two lists. There might be something that you're really good at. You could be very resourceful. There's a lot of things that you might be doing really well. Um, You want to start taking stock of your short and long-term financial goals. Short-term goals are anything that's going to happen within the next one to three years. Long-term financial goals typically look about five to ten years. And you're going to going to want them to treat them a little bit differently. Um, you also want to take a look at that debt level. Definitely take a look at that number. I know it can be really scary, but it's good to quantify what that number is, understand what the interest rates are with each of them and what those interest amounts are going to be that they're going to be payable on them. And what are the monthly payments? 
um, if you have a household budget. If not, is it meeting your uh, make one and check and make sure that it's meeting all your needs. Are there areas in which you can trim or cut your spending? I focus on trimming versus cutting because we don't want to like live. We just don't want to work to live. You want to be able to work and have a few things that, you know, make life enjoyable, um, but free up some funds potentially for debt repayment or for those, um, you know, savings goals that you might have for investments or retirement. You know, much um, like the diet analogy, people want success overnight, but it takes time. And one of those things is ensuring, I guess, you have some momentum going on and that you're able to maintain whatever plan you have in place. Where do you see that working best and how does it uh, really achieve the goals you want when you put that plan in place? Right. So savings and debt repayment are two of those things that you can watch success very much over time. So you can start to see um, if you're going to say, all right, I'm going to save $50 a month. That's it. Then at month two, you're going to say, okay, I've got $100 in savings and then 150. And you're going to want to see, am I on track with this? We've got a lot of really great tools at our fingertips, Google Excel sheets, docs. There's a lot of free things that are online that you can use to start tracking. One, am I making any progress in my savings plans? And then two, am I also making progress in my debt repayment plans? And it can track that for you so you can see how well you're doing. Absolutely. Don't think that you can do this overnight. It took you how many years to get into this position? It's going to take you just probably as much time to potentially get out of that or maybe a little shorter depending on if if you do a more aggressive plan or do restructuring, right? Now, we're all smart people and we think that we can often do it ourselves. When do you bring in a professional? Why would you bring in a professional when maybe some of the advice is simply online, as you point out? I think bringing in a professional at the front end is always a good idea. Even if you think like, hey, I work in finance, I should know all of this stuff. Sometimes we're the worst ones. You know how they say the mechanic is the one that has the worst car in the garage. Sometimes us people in finance also need that kind of help as well. Having an extra set of eyes that isn't currently living in your situation and can look at things from a different perspective is always helpful in reviewing that budget. So having a financial planner or talking like like I say, to a licensed insolvency trustee who can take a look at it from a different perspective, can show you things that you may not be seeing just because we're currently living in that situation and we don't always see the windows and doors available to us, right? Right. Nicole, I often hear the commercials that talk about, oh, yeah, your debt score, we can work on your, uh, or your credit score, we can work on that, make sure it's going to be better by getting your debt under control. But there's so many other benefits uh, to this, and a lot of it comes down to life enjoyment. What do you see in terms of debt stress and anxiety, and what is it like on the other side? Yeah, we just did a debt stigma survey recently in the fall, and it talked about how stressed Canadians are about their debt and that debt restructuring and how it's just creating a lot of anxiety and stress for people. It's one of the things that keeps them up at night, and it's one of the things that they don't even want to talk about. They'd rather talk about their illnesses and divorces rather than they would rather talk about their debt situation. So given that, people do talk about credit scores a lot, and I say, 
Listen, that's secondary. The first thing we need to do is deal with the debt situation. We need to triage it. We need to stop the bleeding. We need to get you in a plan, get the debt repayment going. Working on building your credit score is something that we do afterwards. And really, you just need your credit score to qualify for a mortgage, potentially like a financing of a vehicle. But beyond that, if you're in a debt situation, you don't need to have a great credit score Focus on getting the debt down, the payments that are manageable, so they're not keeping you up at night. You're not getting collections calls. You're not getting harassment from creditors. That's the big piece that's stressing a lot of people out, right? And Absolutely. Good advice, by the way, heading into the new year, which could be a whole lot better as we come off what was arguably a challenging 2023. Nicole, thanks for your time and a happy new year ahead. Yes, and a happy new year to you as well. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.